Welcome to the Lazy People Podcast, the podcast about all things technology and people and technology in Belgium, of course, from outside of Belgium. My name is Errol Baikal, and I'm here with my co-host, Metzian. Welcome to another episode of the Lazy People Podcast, special episode today because it is the the last episode uh, of this season we're wrapping it up uh we'll say a little bit more about that uh, towards the end of the show and it's also a special episode because we have a, a very special guest with us um emre sevinch who is the co-founder and uh, chief technical officer uh, at uh, tm data ict solutions company in antwerp um Emre is uh, currently managing uh, TM Data AST Solutions uh, and helping their clients uh, with various data challenges related to big data, data engineering, advanced analytics, machine learning, artificial intelligence, and all those uh, related uh, fields today. Did I do a good job of introducing you, Emre? Uh, yes, I think you did. And I hope uh, this episode, the, the, the closing episode of this season, uh, will be a good one. And I'm particularly excited because, yeah, you, you you got me by a surprise. I mean, I heard about Lazy People podcast, but I didn't have the opportunity to look more into it. And when I did, I see that you you have a broad spectrum of people from from different industries, different sectors, and very different topics. So I hope we'll be able to keep uh, the the attention and the interest of the audience in this episode too. I think we will, Matt. What do you think? Why, why do you have such a broad, like, uh, just before we go into that, why, why is uh, Lazy People such a broad uh, topic uh, well, show? It, it's, I mean, I know I know we, we talk about technology in general, but then I think we one of the things that we kind of uh, discussed before when we, when we kind of conceived the show was that, so we look into our interest, right? What we encounter in our daily life, uh, daily lives for that matter. And then, and then we kind of, pull into those strings right so so sometimes we might end up with with hr sometimes we might end up with the uh, with sales sometimes we might end up with entrepreneurs sometimes with with uh, scientists and and this is what kind of makes it i think broad but uh at the end of the day it's always it's that the center of it is that technology and then one step and it, each direction is that what we take and I think, um, but yeah, I have no doubt it's going to be a, a, a fun show today because of the uh, because of the topic. I think uh, it's so modern, so active, so vibrant. Yeah, yeah. In, it's modern. Yeah, I, you know. I, I have a little addition to 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 this. We compare um, technology, or once we compare in a in a show, we compare technology to uh, the hospitality sector. So the the cook isn't the only person working in the restaurant. So uh, the the chef is not like if you like the, the software developer, the engineer, you know, the, the people who actually touch the food or touch the code. They're not the only people work making a restaurant a restaurant. There is so much staff going in there, and I think it would be a disservice to the industry or the people that work there to just say we're just going to focus on the chefs. No, there's so many people that make the restaurant the restaurant. That goes from people that decorate the place to people that decide what's going to be on the menu, people that handle logistics, people that handle the front of the house. And I think it's the same mentality we have towards uh, inviting uh, people from what some people might say the periphery of engineering, but still uh, very much so in technology. And speaking of the periphery of, of uh, engineering and periphery of technology, maybe even, uh, 
Emre, one of the most interesting things about you is your educational background, because you come from both hard science and biology and psychology. Can you uh, give us a bit more? Uh... Yeah, I think uh, the, the, the background, uh, sometimes I have difficulty in explaining because uh, it's, it's a bit of uh, a non-traditional background in the sense that uh, my academic life took me into, into places where it, there was always a combination of different disciplines, different, uh, different academic fields. So uh, my undergraduate education, my bachelor's education was, uh, was in Istanbul Technical University, and it was called uh, Mathematics or Mathematical Engineering. And this program, interesting program, um, back in 1990s, it combined a lot of courses from, from applied math, starting with, with uh, you know, usual calculus, go, uh, and engineering math, and also uh, very heavy theoretical mathematical subjects um, such as differential geometry, topology, algebraic topology. It included a lot of applied mathematics. It had a lot of uh, engineering courses uh, like like fluid dynamics, continuum mechanics, um, analytical mechanics. And then it also included a lot of um, discrete mathematics and computer science related courses. It was a challenging program, which yeah, which forced me and my my classmates to study a lot and think in uh, have a different perspectives. Uh, after these studies, um, also during during my university years, I, I was already um, working um, in in software uh, in software business, either either like a, like a pre sales engineer or a software developer in different companies, uh, and I was also um, uh, interested in in other fields such as such as linguistics, and one of my one of my uh, friends, uh, they told me that, uh, that there's a there's a uh, there's a new program in, in 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 a very good university again in Istanbul. It was called cognitive science. When I checked the program, I, I have seen that it was a combination of linguistics, philosophy, psychology, and computer science. So. Uh, I applied and uh, they accepted me, and then uh, I spent a few years there uh, learning a lot about linguistics. And when I say linguistics, uh, think about really traditional linguistics. Um, the department was heavily influenced by Chomsky, Chomsky type of linguistics. Uh, so, uh, like semantics, uh, phonetics, phonology, grammar, all kind of traditional linguistic topics combined with uh, philosophy classes, philosophy of science classes, combined with uh, lots of classes from some psychology, biopsychology, neuroscience, and of course, computer science uh, classes from courses from, from artificial intelligence. Uh, and then, um, yeah, it, it brought, uh, it gave me a very uh, different perspective uh, be because, yeah, in, in different, different departments uh, force you to to think in, in different ways, force force my your mind and brain. And uh, uh, at the end of uh, my master's degree, uh, I wrote a thesis by doing some experiments on humans. It sounds like an evil like <laughs> experiment go use. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I mean, uh, well, physicists experiment on, on machines and materials. Well, cognitive scientists generally ex uh, experiment on humans. Of course, after uh, going through a very uh, strict um, ethical application process, which took me a long time. So, um, and uh, I did some experiments uh, uh, to, to test some hypotheses regarding time perception. 
which is a fascinating topic in itself. Uh, so uh, time perception and how uh, this was affected by by the backgrounds of people, backgrounds being whether they had uh, strong musical training, professional instrument players, musical players, um, or not, and whether there were differences between uh, men and women, uh, between different uh, brain hemispheres, which is, again, a, a fascinating topic, uh, and also sometimes uh, misinterpreted the differences between hemispheres of the brain. So basically what I did was uh, setting up an experiment, uh, some devices, doing some some laboratory setup, um, writing some programs in MATLAB to, to create graphical user interfaces to drive those devices and to, to help people run the uh, uh, participate in the experiment. And then uh, doing statistical analysis using R programming language, statistical programming language to, yeah, to see whether there, there were some st uh, statistically meaningful uh, differences between uh, different kinds of people that were doing some hypothesis testing. And this is how I uh, got to, yeah, finish my master's degree. I also uh, participated in some um, uh, other uh, academic uh, things because there were some professors uh, working on uh, very interesting topics uh, such as uh, uh, natural language steganog steganography and for, for the audience members who doesn't know what steganography is I'm included it, in that <laughs> uh, so it's, it's, again it's, it's a fascinating area basically the steganography is, uh, is the art the science and art of uh, hiding a message in plain sight for example taking a JPEG or GIF or PNG mm -hmm, you see mm -hmm. okay and then encoding for example, a sound file or mm -hmm. or, or 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 some some so that if uh, you, string so but so to the to the human beings uh, it's ju it's just a, it's just the same picture for example your your picture your face but it's encoded in such a way that there's a hidden message in it mm -hmm. you can do it with sound files you can do it with graphics files uh, these are the these are the most uh, popular cases what are the popular applications for example watermarking. So for, for all practical purposes, people are consuming it. Ah, but then the person who uh, embedded that message without distorting the music or the, the appearance, uh, the graphics, can know, okay, it has this such and such watermark, whatever. So I know that's the file. It's a fascinating topic. And uh, there were some professors uh, who wanted to apply similar ideas to pure plain text. So can we make change in the, in the human for example, in an English text, by making some small uh, grammatical or punctuation chains without breaking the meaning, without distorting the meaning, but encoding, embedding it like crazy. I mean, it sounds it sounds very straightforward, simple, but when you get into it, so we wrote some programs and we tested on some some corpus. It was a yeah, very interesting. Uh, I don't that know what sounds, the, that sounds yeah, absolutely crazy. I mean, crazy, crazy bonkers. Yeah, I it's crazy. People hiding, you know, um, uh, unprintable uh, Unicode characters using for yeah. uh, uh, not only for. Uh, watermarking but also preventing people from uh, uh copying things but of course that exactly. introduces a lot of other uh issues because search engines cannot really interpret what's going on there because you've got these invisible characters injected in your words etc uh but uh i'm just you you told us about so many things i'm just wondering about the outcomes like 
is there a difference in time perception for people who have like a musical background well, or based on gender it, or not? And yeah, did the steganography work with, with uh, the text? If, 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 you, if, you, uh, if you will create a, a web page for, for this episode, then I can share you some links uh, with uh, links to my, to my thesis where the, the curious audience members can, can read the, the gory details. Uh, we'll share those links on LinkedIn. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The, the, uh, in some aspects, aspects there were some uh, there were some differences. In some aspects, um, uh, there weren't that that many differences. Uh, but still, it is a it is an um, uh, the time perception and time difference. It's a, it's an ongoing topic uh, because yeah, time is one of the most fundamental concepts, not only physically but also psychologically. Uh, but Emre, so, does this mean that um, the if you know the theory is is, pro- is obviously correct, but does this mean that um, some people basically live longer or experience life longer than other people? It's uh, it's I think it's a, it's a very broad topic, and um, I think um, there are also books that that authors, professors that claim that your your time perception. Of course, when we say time perception, we have to be specific because the time perception on on the scale of a few seconds, few minutes. Or few days. Th- these are these are very different. Probably, most probably, uh, involving very different areas and mechanisms in the brain. Uh, but also, the time perception, uh, as far as I can understand, it also changes um, based on your age. So how you perceive the passage of time, it's 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 not the same. I mean, it's like folklore theory, like how time passes when you're getting older. But there are actually books. There's a there's a very particular book. Uh, I think by by a Dutch scientist, Dutch author, who uh, investigates the topic of how you're perceiving the per, per, perceiving um, the the passage of time as you grow older. And I think I need to go back to that book because I read it for more than ten years ago, and I'm getting older. Mm-hmm. So and my time like yesterday. So, yeah. So <laughs> so it's uh, also what you remember your your memory. I mean, it's it's all constantly changing in the short term, but it's also changing in the long term as you as you're getting older. Um, so yeah, fascinating topic. But uh, uh, even though it was it was very interesting, uh, I didn't uh, go further and deeper into that topic because uh, I didn't continue in the academia. I was already again working as a, a totally uh, non-related place, like doing professional software engineering for for an online um, online education system. So I continued there for a while, and then life took me to to Belgium. And in Belgium, I also continued with, with uh, software projects uh, until I set up this company. Uh, so even though, but uh, whatever I do, I can I simply cannot stay away from from such topics and related topics because, from my perspective, they are all, in a sense, interrelated and interconnected, like meaning, language, time perception. Uh, like uh, the, the messages, encoding same thing in, in different ways, and how humans perceive it, how machines perceive it, uh, it all it all ties together. Uh, but of course, when you when you when you're uh, working in a subfield of a subfield, or when you're doing doing a particular uh, client or customer project, your scope is very very it's super narrow. You have you have some some key criteria, so it's it's very narrow. So you don't. You don't have much room for speculation or for grand research. I mean, there are people doing some grand research with big, big research teams. Uh, my perspective is more like trying to 
uh, discover the relationships between sometimes seemingly unrelated topics uh, because there are uh, some some um, some things, some some trends also in, in artificial intelligence. It's like they come and go and then come back again. For example, um, uh, there's a there's a there's a very famous book called Gödel Escher Bach, and um, either you heard it or you read it or maybe you will read it after this after this episode. So it's it's not a new book. It was uh, published in the end of uh, 1970s. And it became very uh, popular. It, it became like a, like a cult icon in some circles, written by a famous researcher, Douglas Hofstadter. And uh, in this book, Professor Hofstadter, which had background in, in physics, he had his PhD in physics, but then switched to artificial intelligence and cognitive science. Uh, so in that book, keep in mind that this is almost, almost uh, 40 years ago, he referred to that, like the the fundamental aspect of of intelligence is creating concepts, analogies, and finding um, relationships between seemingly very different things. And he gave an example by by a Russian Russian researcher called Bongard problems. The last name of the researcher was Bongard, and he created some some abstract geometrical shapes and presented problems uh, like like you know like IQ problems, like these are the shapes and what's the difference, what what should be the next shape. It seems pretty straightforward for human beings. But the, the question was, can we create programs that can handle such abstract problems that require not only visual recognition, but also abstract thinking reasoning? Okay, Hofstadter made this, this obscure Russian researcher popular for a while with Bongard problems. And then... Uh, he had some PhD students working on this uh, with, with limited success on creating programs like that. Well, what time are we talking about now, by the way? We're talking about 1980s, 1990s. Okay. Then, uh, uh, of course, uh, during that time, um, we didn't have uh, something called deep learning. We, we didn't have these, these modern uh, artificial intelligence uh, trends. But just about, I think, uh, towards the end of uh, 2020, as, as the, the COVID was about to strike, uh, the, 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 one of the most famous brands, companies, NVIDIA, okay, gaming, graphics, and also those uh, very uh, powerful GPUs that's used in, in deep learning AI, modern AI research. This company, of course, they employ a lot of uh, cutting-edge researchers. And the team from NVIDIA said, Bongard problems. I said, ah, I mean, I know this. I mean, I, I wrote about it uh, in, in my blog in, in Turkish um, about more than 10 years ago. And now these people are dealing with the same problems that, that was created by a Russian researcher in 1970s and made popular by an American researcher in 1980s. Yes, because, why? They said, these Bongard problems, even though they seem uh, very simple, they're, they're not like uh, full, uh, very detailed uh, images or videos, very simple geometric shapes and problems. We don't have, uh, uh, even the state-of-the-art programs cannot solve this uh, as well as humans do. So they started to focus on these kind of problems. And the first thing they, they did uh, was, to, was to create a benchmark, a data set, so that different algorithms, different programs can, can compete and show. And I checked what, what, what happened in between, I think, um, 
this year uh, they created uh, another system, another data set and benchmark, but they have they have some baselines and still what they say. I'm talking about this year, so this is this is state of the art. Yeah, yeah, and I'm talking about researchers from Caltech and NVIDIA. So people who are who are really um, at the forefront of this field, they're saying that we, even though there were a lot of breakthroughs in the in the last few years, such as the famous famous ImageNet competitions, like in some fields, the computers can can identify images, recognize images. Uh, at the success rate of like more than 90%, 95%, 96%, 97%. Now we're talking about whether AI deep learning systems can replace radiology experts, like really checking your medical images and finding some signs, whether you have the sickness or what. So we're there are some back breakthroughs. Okay, but what does that mean? Like, are these systems uh, doing something like we humans are doing? Apparently, not exactly, because if they did, they could also have a similar kind of performance in these in these Bongard problems. Uh, what they what they have shown that uh, even uh, even the current state of the art cannot do these these common sense reasoning with these uh, with these shapes. But isn't there like a, a an ocean, a vast ocean between recognizing images and doing that uh, the reasoning? Because the the in the recognizing objects in, in pictures and bitmaps is like you say it's a problem we solved right we, we do that well now to an right? extent to an extent because i think but reasoning is, is like a completely other thing yeah. and i'm not talking about spe specific uh domain problems like giving a gps uh artificial intelligence or a gps bot saying like, I, I need to go from point a to b and here are my here are my up-to-date uh, parameters what should i do i mean that's also reasoning to a certain extent, but the abstract reasoning that you talk about, that seemed to be like so far beyond. That's also my perception, and that's also that's also this perception or, or this perspective is also shared by some other researchers. Even though, I mean, um, it's 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 very interesting to to uh, peek and poke at this at this state of the art AI systems, as you know. Uh, we we had a lot of success. For example, right now our voice is being recorded, and there are systems that can on the fly transcribe what we're talking. They can transcribe like from from speech to text. They can recognize speech. Well, more right? or less. But more or less, of course, <laughs> depending on depending on the accent. I'm I'm talking about I'm talking about native English speakers and native English speakers from, let's say, from United Kingdom or. Because I don't know uh, the accent characteristics of uh, Jamaican English speakers, whatever. So uh, it's it's also a huge topic. Uh, but uh, for for a subset of human language, speech recognition is is very very successful compared to the state of the art ten years ago. Okay, nice. But I think we have to be very careful when we say uh, recognizing, understanding, because for example, object recognition. Uh, Lots of money went into that. Lots of research went into that. State of the art, it seems very good. But what's going on actually? Why am I asking this question? Because again, recently, I think one or two years ago, some researchers from MIT, they published a very funny, interesting data set. Again, daily objects, but placed in uh, non-traditional angles. Mm -hmm. For example, a chair, oh. but mm -hmm. you know, 
for human beings, I mean, a chair is a chair. No matter how you, I mean, unless you do some very strange things to a chair, even my four-year-old will point to that, okay, bring me the chair, and he will go to that chair. He will understand what I'm talking about. Whereas these systems who were very successful, I mean, close to 99%, mm-hmm. like less than one error percent error rate, these systems, when presented with uh, unusual angles, mm-hmm. so, I mean, they're But that problems. makes sense, right? Because they're probably neural network based. And then Indeed. The, the data set that you provide gives them a certain angle. So if you provide the data set from other angles, then they'll Indeed. learn to recognize but, that as well. Exactly. So the, the problem is, what are these very complex networks? What are they actually learning? Th- that's the question. And I think that's also fascinating because we also same ask the same question to human beings, like what are our, our children, what are they learning? What's going on exactly in the brain? Something is happening and we're seeing the output. Also with these complex networks, it's when, when we're talking about like th- these are the networks with billions parameters, so many nodes. I mean, these are, these are hugely complex systems. What exactly are they learning? Even the researchers who, I mean, they run them uh, and it, it's, 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 it's very experimental. And you see the results, but what did they actually learn? Apparently, they did not learn some abstract concepts. They learned some features that helped them uh, become so successful. But did they learn some some abstract concepts? But did you, do you find this surprising? I mean, did, did anybody ever say, "Oh, the, the the this network is going to"? recognize objects from angles it has never seen what well, it, it, i don't it's, think it it's, was ever it, it ever claimed to be able, like it trains ah, on the data it receives no i think it was not only me who found this surprising because these uh, i think there was a reason uh, these researchers from 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 mit they created this data set because uh, there were claims that object recognition is solved these are not my words by the way Object recognition, object recognition is solved for Google Images. Let's, let's ah, okay, okay, well, but you don't you don't get press releases uh, like that. You, what you get press releases like it's a solved problem, or from another big company like uh, speech recognition is solved. Is it? But I, I'm gonna I'm gonna give a counter to you. Okay, let's say you say uh, people are capable of you know object recognition to a much uh, larger extent than, than computer you know than neural networks currently can do. Um, let's say I take a music, for example, instead of, of image, and I warp it to the point that you don't recognize it anymore. Does that mean I defeated your uh, brain's capabilities? Or is it just that your brain was never trained to interpret that data in that way? You never were given the the uh, the formula for the uh, transformation that happened to the original piece. And therefore, now claiming that, oh, you, you're not trained to recognize music because I now give it to you in a... In a, you know, it's, it's a song, you know, but I, I sped it up, slowed it down, echo, I reversed it. It's the same information, if you will, but, you know, in, with some transformations on it. Would that, is that not the same I think, comparison? Uh, I think then... Um, is it not unfair towards the, the poor computer to say, like, uh, oh, you, you... No, because um, uh, then we, we, we have to, um, we have to, instead of speculation, I think, again, it, it would be good to create such data sets like... Uh, Taking some some songs from different genres and then uh, applying some transformations and then uh, see uh, then see the results whether whether uh, human beings uh, human listeners 
can identify correctly these songs? What kind of transformations make their their job identification recognition job uh, difficult, easy, and then compare with with uh, with uh, with AI systems? In the case of uh, image recognition, we have such data sets, both for for the cases where computers are very very successful, and for the cases that they make some very interesting errors. And I stress the word interesting errors because the nature of the error is also fascinating why slightly switching the topic not from ai but from uh, from image recognition to text to natural language for example i'm also fascinated by by translation automated translation systems which i i and millions of people daily use for example the most famous one of course being the google translate uh, so it is a very successful system. Why do I say this? Because I'm a witness to it. I use it almost every day and with different languages like German, French, Italian, Dutch, English. Uh, but what I realize is, does this automated translation system, is it working like a human being? I mean, okay, it's not a human being, of course, but what it's exactly doing? Why am I asking this question? Because one day I write a sentence makes a very very good high quality translation and then i accidentally hit enter in the middle of the sentence so the 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 a few words are not on the same line but the second line and then suddenly the translation is totally bonkers i mean it's wrong it's 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 um uh it's just something uh, a stupid output like what's going on i accidentally hit the new line button i accidentally hit the enter or i accidentally put a comma or or uh, dot which to a human being, doesn't change the semantics at all. But you look at the result and you see, oops, I mean, the automated translation system cannot deal with this. So it seems it's super, super fragile for but some I, kind I of get I'm gonna I'm going to play the, the advocate of the computer here. I, I, I know you're burning for a question. Just, I just want to put this in here. And then I'll, I'll, I'll give you the word. Because here's the thing. Are you not giving being unfair again on the point that um, humans don't translate that well either, especially when they have to translate between languages that don't belong to the same family? There's actually a saying in Italian that I was taught in my in my undergraduate, and I looked it up to to, to uh, mispronounce here, but it's traditore traduttore, and yeah. it means very nice phrase. The, the the translator is a traitor because why is the translator a traitor? Because you are trying to massage a meaning into uh, a language and if, if it's in the same language family you know it, it has the same devices you can put it in there but let's say you take it from a completely different family which has a completely different way of structuring things and even words have a culturally different meaning so if we know that even the human is incapable like in, in in english you say loss in translation like even if when humans cannot do that because you need to to translate one sentence into another language you might have to translate it into three different sentences and add a footnote and now here we have uh, an automated system say oh yeah but it, it doesn't really do a good job like humans no no, have no, uh, no but let's let's be be careful how did i start this section of my of my conversation i said that's a super successful system on which I'm relying. 
Like for oh, example, yeah, okay, for example, fair enough. Yeah, you so, did say so that. You 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 tell me, hey, Emre, did you hear about the news? Uh, what's the, what's the source? Uh, there's this French newspaper. Well, sorry, my French, I'm trying to learn, but it's it's not still not good enough. So what I do, I immediately paste this uh, web address, French newspaper, and then Google Translate gives me back it in English or in Turkish. And most of the time, I understand almost 99% of it because it's, it's doing a very good job. Mm-hmm. It's helping with, 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 it's helping me with, with news passages, uh, daily language usage. No, no, yeah, you're right. Yeah, for, yeah, for Italian, for, for German. My German is also not very good. Hey, in German, in English, a piece of news or a scientific article, I understand, thanks to Google Translate, thanks to automated translation systems, I understand more than 90% of it. But what's going on? Like, why does it make, why does it go crazy when I just hit and enter? So it's the same sentence. If I show you, you will immediately give me like, hey, Emre, you, okay, maybe you made a mistake or you put um, a dot, a comma here. There are cases where a comma drastically can change the meaning. I'm not talking about these high level uh, uh, cases. I'm talking about like like some some simple changes that doesn't change the semantics at all. Whereas, so there, of course, if you know what's going on in the background uh, for, for the people who know about this and for the experts who d- develop this, you understand what's going on. You, you understand uh, uh, why the system can fail in such ways. So this is what, what I'm fascinating. In, in one way, for, for, for the intended use case, if you're very close to it, the systems work, I mean, great. I mean, it can translate so much test. Like, no human can compete with that system. It can translate millions of pages, maybe in, in less than a few minutes. But the same system, how robust is it? How robust is it to, to, to the changes that, that the human beings are also robust? Because also robustness, fragility is also important. Because, for example, uh, let, let's take, like, for example, a popular case, like you, you're driving a car. Uh, and I, and I, if I'm a passenger, I I trust you with my life because you're driving me from from point A to point B. But I also know that if you don't feel well, I mean, there there's some. I can I, I can estimate that even though you're you're not feeling well, your reasoning skills, whatever. So you can maybe drive, or maybe you can take me to a hospital for. Uh, you can you can do that for five more minutes. Because I have a more or less good model of what you being a human being is is capable of whereas with these with these automated systems with these ai systems uh, there are a lot of claims and also i mean I, I use such systems to solve some business problems but we have to be very careful when we're using uh, very high high level uh, uh, verbs words such as recognize understand explain find the reason reasoning uh, because otherwise, um, um, yeah, it's it's a kind of I would say expectation management. Always okay. and always, like uh, for example, in our in our company blog in TM Data, uh, you can uh, I will also share you with the link in tmdata.be. Uh, I was fascinated by by another recent example. It's it's a software that almost everybody uses every day. Microsoft PowerPoint, and PowerPoint now it has a Fascinating feature. You put you put a you put a picture, and uh, for uh, you can put uh, an explanation for the picture. 
Normally, what you do, you look at the picture. You're a human being. You chose that picture. You know what the, what the picture, what the photograph is all about. You can type like a, a man uh, walking a dog or a woman doing something. Okay. You, this is also important. Like you can you can put an an alt text, alternative text, so that screen readers uh, for for uh, visual impaired people uh, they they can read this text and okay. Now PowerPoint has a feature like you put a, a photo, it immediately describes this photo and says it's automatically uh, described. I didn't know this. I just discovered this accidentally. I put a car, it says a, a blue car standing in front of. Cool. I put a bicycle, it says uh, a bicycle with that color in that position. I said, what's going on? I realized that it is sending these, these photographs in the background to, to Microsoft's uh, cognitive services and it's being analyzed. By the, by the object recognition systems, and then it's giving out a nice test, a short text description. A few things, I, I tested it, like daily images that I shot photograph with my smartphone. It worked almost 100%. So cool, I mean, it's, it's great. A, a tiny little feature, which is obviously backed by artificial intelligence. But then I found some other photographs, like, like, a, like a woman doing some housework and the guy sitting lazily on the couch, a lazy person. Okay, what's happening? The system tries to, again, automatically try to describe. It didn't recognize the woman. It said, there's a couch and there, there's a guy laying, sitting on that couch. Okay, hello, but there's a woman in the front doing some housework, trying to pick up some clothes, probably for of that guy. Where is that woman? Like, why don't you see that woman? I mean, and this is this is not something that I made up. I mean, I just it was like like a stock photo. I just found it on the internet, like men, women doing something at the house. It was just a very very ordinary photo. And these people, they were they were uh, like just white middle aged Western people. So as as uh, as as typical as it can get on on the internet. Still. When I when I realized it, I, I call this uh, like a concept like AI blindness. So we have to be very careful. Like these systems are working, but they're not working like human beings. So uh, we have to keep a good eye on them. And maybe uh, I, I believe the importance of um, continuous education, continuous training. So we have to know the capabilities of the tools we are using. For some of the tools, for some of the traditional IT tools, more or less, we know the capabilities. We can describe the limitations. For example, if you're developing a mobile app, if you're developing a server-side application with, with .NET, with Java, and if your client or your boss or your manager asks, hey, how much load can it handle? Or on which, on which devices can it work? And what are the limitations? If you're working in that field for a few years, and if you're an expert, you can easily say, okay, more or less this and that. Because you have a very good mental model of the technologies you're using. You don't have to know the details down to the level of electronics, transistors. But if you know a little bit, uh, a few levels down the stack, you will describe the capabilities and the limitations uh, in, a, in, a, in a well, healthy and realistic manner. Whereas for such systems, I mean, what I see, even the researchers this who This is a black box. Yeah, I mean, like, what exactly is happening and what is this system is obviously learning because we, we train those systems. We don't program them. The program is almost always the same. The training and the data set, they're continuously changing. We're training them. We're not programming them. These systems, 
learning, even though also the learning is a pretty overloaded word, let's say they are learning, they're adapting, we're not programming them explicitly, but what exactly is happening? I have my doubts. I mean, it's, it's, it's difficult uh, to, to come to terms with what exactly is happening. Uh, the research is still going, and I think it's, it's, it's fascinating because in, in some use cases, in some domains, I mean, it's obvious, there's no denying, they're super successful and they're super helpful. And they're, uh, of course, there's always some hype, but also they they are driving they are driving um, a lot of success. On the other hand, uh, I mean, uh, you sent me some some questions to answer, and I gave an example to one of the questions. Like, it's it's everywhere. Like these virtual assistants from from big players such as Google, Amazon, and they can answer some questions. They can recognize some some things very well. For example, they can. Tell me exactly the top speed of a famous runner, Usain Bolt. Okay, very nice. I tried this at home, both with Amazon Alexa and Google Assistant. The one in English, Alexa, the Google Assistant in Dutch. But both systems had problems when I asked them if Usain Bolt knows how to run or if Usain Bolt knows how to stop. Okay, sounds a little bit stupid, but you smile, you understand. I mean, you, you even have a sense of humor. Which which they don't they don't need to have, but I don't know, it depends. Uh, but anyway, so like okay, we you and I can understand why it's weird for these devices for these systems to to answer such question, but it's I mean these are very simple questions that that require the the reasoning skills of a five year old or a four year old, uh, and we should keep in mind that these are the behind these systems. There are professors and people with PhDs in speech recognition, information retrieval, web retrieval, like people are spending serious research and business efforts to, to enhance the systems day in, day out. By the way, I think I should give where uh, credit where credit is due because those examples about uh, uh, some funny questions about Usain Bolt's running speed versus his uh, like reasoning about his skills, these are from uh, from a book I recently read. It's called uh, Artificial Intelligence, A Guide for Thinking Humans. It's by Melanie Mitchell, Professor Melanie Mitchell, who was also uh, one of the PhD students of Douglas Hofstadter. So she wrote a very fascinating book and she gives us examples. And this is why I decided to try it out with, with the systems because she gives this same example. And this book has been published in when? I think towards the end of 2019. So about, a, about two years passed. And I said, well, these devices, they are very smart. They are, they are constantly learning these, these devices, getting data from millions of clients, their speech and the, the errors that they do. And in the background, uh, the servers in Amazon, in Google, in Microsoft, they should be constantly analyzing but this data. Again, you know, I, I'm going to be playing the devil's advocate, but I'm going to let Med, uh, uh, you had something to say, I think, Med? Well, go for it first. Go ahead. Here, here's the thing. I, I'm you're working on edge cases, which is you're interested, you're fascinated by this technology. Therefore, you're trying to discover its limits. Whereas, for ninety nine point seventy five percent of the global population, they're never going to ask, "Can Usain Bolt run?" They're going to ask, "How fast does Usain Bolt run?" So. Uh, isn't that and, a bit... I'm sorry. If they ask that question, we're still happy, right? I mean, people look for, give me something on TikTok and give me this dance, and people are really not at the level of 
where you're thinking, right? I mean, and that's the what I, I would call the sad reality. I, I completely. And I, by the way, uh, sorry to interrupt, but I don't think it is sad. I mean, I'm I'm happy with the systems. Yeah, you keep repeating that. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Again, that's true. Again, you, are, you keep repeating that. I'm not, that I'm not You're relying on them. By them. Yeah, that's yeah. true. That's true. Let's uh, again, not, let's I mean, not, yeah. I'm, I'm fascinating. I, I would, I have to, I have to say that I am fascinated uh, by the speech recognition performance, especially by Alexa. When, when you were speaking English, I only tested with English, and I have an accent. I'm, I'm not a native English speaker from United States or United Kingdom. Uh, well, most people it, in the world aren't. Yeah, still, even uh, with non-native speakers, it is very, very good. I mean, it almost doesn't, for, for most of the cases I tested, it is understanding. That is not the case, for example, for Dutch, not Alexa. Alexa doesn't have Dutch support yet, last time I checked. But for, for Google Assistant, which does have Dutch support, but it is the Dutch from the Netherlands. And the Dutch for Belgium, which is a little different Flemish. Okay, so again these data-driven systems. So we also see some, some disparities. And why? Because not because of the limitations in, in AI capabilities, but probably uh, the disparities of, of economic disparities. Probably either they didn't bother or they didn't have uh, high quality data sets in Dutch. No, no, in... it's just, well, if you look at children's cartoons channels, it's all in uh, Netherlands Dutch. They don't put it in Flemish Dutch. Uh, for example, yeah. It's too, small I... of a, yeah. it's too small of a group to target specifically, and it doesn't make economic sense, I think, to prioritize. It will be one of the, the last languages to, to be targeted. Like the, the Walloons with their French will probably get mm. get a better support before the Flemish probably. too. What, but also, uh, what I what I also find interesting is that the uh, the speech recognition performance differences between adult voice and children voice. Because I have two children, a three and a half year old and a ten year old, and they're also native Dutch speakers. When they speak, I mean, these systems are struggling. Whereas when, for example, when their mothers speak, who is uh, she is a native Dutch speaker, the system is not struggling that much. So. And to, to, to a human, like it, it sounds very weird because a child or or, a, or, a, or an adult woman, I mean, it's the same thing. Dutch is Dutch. If you understand the language, then you understand the child. I mean, if the child is speaking fluently, but then these systems are struggling. Again, what exactly is happening? In a sense, they're super successful. In a sense, what they have learned is not exactly what we think humans are learning. So maybe maybe I'm I'm fascinated by this and I'm I'm talking a lot about this because of my because of my um, cognitive science background, uh, but uh, there's there's uh, always this um, very uh, uh, narrow scoped business aspect, and there's this broader scope of uh, how these these systems are evolving. So when when I'm of course when I'm working on a for example on a on a uh, on an object recognition project, for example, this these robot has to recognize such and such machine parts with such and such accuracy, whatever. You don't deal with such, let's say, long-term or broad or philosophical questions. Why? Because the scope is super narrow. The business uh, key business questions, business challenges are, are pretty well defined. It might be still a challenging machine learning AI vision project, but it's uh, the the scope is very narrow, and the, and the performance you're expecting, uh, the criteria, they're very well defined, 
and these will not change. Uh, like there could be a change, like a speaker of five-year-old versus a speaker of fifty-five-year-old in another language. There will not be such disparities. Uh, but still, I find it fascinating when when a very successful AI system cannot tell me that there is a woman in front of me picking up the clothes, but it can identify that there is a woman, there is a, there is a man behind her laying on the couch. Well, I mean, uh, that that's uh, very the, interesting. The way the way I, the, I mean, yeah, I know we. Yeah, I covered a lot of lot of uh, topics. I think um, a lot of points that I wanted to kind of, uh, uh, you know, provide my my uh, my my opinion at least. Uh, the first thing is the global one, right? I mean, this is nothing new for science. This is basically science at work. Science covers you in a ninety nine percent of the cases when it's done when it's correct, and it's not an absolute truth. So there will be cases. For example, we look at the Newtonian laws that we have. We use them up up until today. We go, we, we live our lives by them, but we know they're not true 100% of the time. We can see it now in, for example, if we look at quantum, well, some things we don't understand. I'm sure we're going to find a way to explain them, and they're going to carry us for I don't know how many years. And at some point, we're going to realize, look, this is not the full explanation of things. Um, so, yeah. And again, this is for the masses, this works. You know, I mean, life goes on with basically what we know. So Google Translate will do a good job, a, a very good job, in in um, for for the, for the masses. Can we depend on it, uh, 100% of the time? No, and and that's 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 simply, it's simply not possible, um, because it's not an absolute uh, truth. It's it's simple as that. Now. The, the, the other thing is that we uh, there's something about that that I wish well uh, there's something you have to understand like uniqueness of things so everything is unique to itself like there's nothing like it you could ha you could you could replicate to be almost like it but it won't be it so for example and humans can can see patterns sometimes so for example if I if I if I dial, if I try to call Errol, right, I dial his number, but I make a mistake in one of the digits, right? I'm not going to reach him, right? So the machine is not completely going to give me someone different, right? As a human being, I would say, I could jokingly say, oh, well, I just missed one number. Maybe I should have gotten another Errol, right? Not him, but someone else, or maybe his cousin, <laughs> right? Well, it does not work like that, right? Machines are not that type of, you know, we could train them to be like that, but they are not they're not there right so they are more that, that binary in a sense in essence they are that's you know true or false right uh on or off this is what we are dealing with um so there's that uniqueness right so that unique number that's unique right a human being is also unique right with the way you, you speak for example if a machine if google uh, assistant is able to understand you and, and interpret what you said uh, and transcribe it, for example. Uh, again, it will do it to a, you know, for, to a high percentage, for example. And again, it will fail because it won't be you. It will not be 100% from you. Again, if you're going to give, if you're going to teach this machine, you cannot teach it more than 100% of what you know. It cannot. It's impossible. Now, something that possibly, if we are smart enough, if we have learning that's stackable, 
then you give it a little bit, someone else gives a little bit, gives, someone gives a little bit, and that stacking, you put this together, they might accumulate to more than 100% of a human being, right? But not, uh, again, it, the, what we say, loss in translation, right? Basically, you cannot transfer everything without loss of energy. So and that's the thing with, with information. You cannot say, I'm going to teach this machine to behave just like a human being for it to replace a human being. No, it will not. It could replicate the human being in the 90% or whatever, in some case, a high percentage, and we can always improve that, but it will never be a human being. It will never not, it will not be. It just will not be. It's impossible. I mean, even the day when we have like cloning machines, right? And I would just clone myself. That person will not be me. 100% like me, it would not be. It's impossible. It, I mean, I say impossible, although in a, in a sense. One last thing I want to mention is that a lot of what we see in life is driven by commerce, right? By business. So yeah, you have this, um, because of business, you have marketing. And because of marketing, you have these claims, right? Oh, we can do this and we can do that. And we can see this and we can see that. And we see, we see life failing in the smallest things, right? Like you say, the example of, yeah, can Usain Bolt's you know, run, right? Um, or, you know, does he know how to run? I mean, yeah. And so this is where, um, yeah, we will always have this kind of, uh, uh, these are kind of weaknesses. And we on, in, in, in AI, for example, now, if we focus on them, yeah, that's the weakest. I mean, the machine is never claimed, like Earl mentioned, we never claimed to be, you know, smart, actually. We, we're trying to say, to think it's smart. It's fast, that's for sure. It can process, you know, in a linear way more than us, maybe not even in a linear way. A lot of things could be processed more than us, more than a human being. And we see this, by the way, even in just, you know, autonomous cars, right? Look how challenging it is just to yeah. maneuver, like simple things that anybody Indeed. does, you know? Yeah. And someone that would you take him outside in real life and you give him a math uh, uh, you know, a math question and he would struggle to answer it, right? But then they will drive a car, you know, paying attention to so many things, so many sensors in our bodies being triggered and reacting to unseen situations when a machine is not capable of doing that. I, I, yeah, I, I, again, I, yeah, if, if there's any point that I want to, again, highlight here, just to put them. So one is the uniqueness. We should not forget about that. Um, two is that loss of energy, right? So we cannot teach something 100% to, to, to you know, to, to replicate uh, something. Three would be, um, you know, business driving advancements. So the claim of something, oh, we can do this as human beings, we can achieve this. Well, if it's only done by two scientists, um, and stays in the lab, then that's not just a big claim, but it's not in practice. And sometimes you can have something in practice to say, hey, uh, we can translate really good and it works for the masses, but then in real life, it doesn't work 100% of the times. And uh, <laughs> to, 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 uh, to have a few remarks, um, uh, I think I, I agree with you in the sense that uh, I also don't think like we will have like 100% human machines human like capabilities but what i'm 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 focusing on is uh can we make these systems smarter i mean they still can be very different from humans but ca can we make them better and i of course i'm not the only one asking these questions uh people with uh with uh, big much bigger companies are asking the same questions and i i think they're going in a very interesting directions in the last few years and what do i mean for example we said that 
the system can recognize what I say. Can you say in bold, uh, what's the top speed? Or I type it to, to a search box and it, it immediately gives me the, the answer. But nowadays, the last few years, uh, this, this, uh, these giant companies, Amazon, Google, Microsoft, they also started to invest heavily in symbolic approaches, very similar to, to what we call like abstract symbolic reasoning. Of course, this is nothing new. That This is how AI, artificial intelligence, started back in 1950s, middle 1950s. Uh, but uh, almost 20 years ago, people came up with the concept of uh, semantic webs using graph databases. Uh, the, the inventor of HTTP, the inventor of World Wide Web, Sir Tim Berners-Lee, came up with that. It didn't catch a lot of popularity. So it, uh, I mean, it, can, it became popular in the academic circles, but most of the companies said, that's too academic, that's, that's too much, we cannot do this. What happened? Same concept, different name. Now they're calling it knowledge graphs. They, they, they stay away from the word semantic web because it's pretty overloaded. It sounds very academic. Forget about semantic web. Do the same thing, almost same thing, but call it knowledge graphs. What's happening? You're telling Apple, Apple the fruit or Apple the computer company. The moment you say, for example, disambiguate Apple the fruit or Apple the computer company, which Google is actively helping you. Did you mean the company or the fruit? The moment you say this, it starts to show you things that are related to fruits in some in a logical way, or the things that are related to a computer company in a very abstract, logical way. So what's going on in the background? They're building huge graph, symbolic graph databases that let them navigate in this graph to create very logical, very meaningful, and very explainable and understandable by human beings. They're, they're coming with such capabilities. What I think, I'm, okay, now I'm, I'm widely speculating, but if this, uh, I think one of the problems with, with, um, with these speech recognition or translation systems is that they're not making full use of the company's resources. For example, this, this translation system, for example, Google, it's not making the use of the huge database of Google itself. Like Google has access to billions and billions of facts, information, web pages, Wikipedia. And some of it is pretty much symbolically encoded, like a graph database in a knowledge graph. When these are combined, I think uh, these systems can be much smarter. And the same applies, okay, we, we, Okay, there's this, this global scale, like all human language, all web pages, all the facts. But there are fascinating projects that are ongoing, which I've also used in some, in some pretty, um, uh, yeah, business, business projects. For example, there's a big project called DBpedia that is extracting structured information from Wikipedia. Wikipedia is free text. You need to be a human to understand what's going on in Wikipedia, what's the relationship between, for example, me and the company, whatever. But there's a, there's a separate project that's getting facts out of this natural language text and creating a very automated, uh, a, a, actual, pretty much a database that can be queried, automatically queried, using semantically meaningful relationships so that, for example, if you're, you, the moment, uh, I say, this is a person, this is a software developer, engineer, 
then does it work? It knows the concept of working at somewhere. At somewhere, at a physical location, or an abstract organization, the company. What is a company? It knows what a company is, what kind of logical properties a company can have, which if you continue navigating in this in this symbolic graph, you can find a company can be a partner with another company. It can have another employees, partners, whatever, business revenue. So all these kind of very abstract concepts uh, coupled with logical relationships, these systems can, to an extent, do some abstract reasoning. Not very super smart, but still pretty much automated and fascinating when you see it in action. Meaning, like, for example, uh, a concept, uh, it, they can understand, like, uh, the same thing can be uh, in, in Dutch written in, in, in one way, the same town, and its French counterpart, French translation, can be a different set of characters. The moment you know that uh, it, that's an entity, a town, then you know that it's also the same entity, the same thing corresponds to the same thing, and then you can continue uh, navigating uh, the concepts in that, for example, French language. So you can you can build cross linguistic semantic search systems. It's it's a fascinating topic. Uh, so uh, sometimes uh, I I might sound a little bit uh, too too critical or or pessimistic. On the contrary, I think uh, I think. Uh, those systems are very powerful. What I'm complaining is, why aren't they even more powerful? Because we've got so much data, and it's only growing. Not only not only on the global scale, even a company, ten person company or a ten thousand person company, there is so much data in terms of in terms of yeah, word documents, spreadsheets, presentations. But the most what I've seen in 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 huge enterprises, the most things that they can do. Okay, let's uh, stick a search engine, index the pages, you type some characters, some words, it can bring you 10,000 Word documents. Uh, oh my God. I mean, can't you please like build something more semantic, meaningful, so that this search engine can guide me to find what I'm looking for instead of returning me just 10,000 mm -hmm. or 1,000 raw results, 10 high quality, semantically meaningful results. Again, that's a business problem. Uh, it has very different incentives, but I think both the, the the theory and the practice is there. I think it's a matter of combining them in a smart manner, which is happening to an extent on a global scale, even though it is not advertised. Uh, if, if you look for it, you will see very strong claims from like object recognition and salt, whereas these, these knowledge graphs, these things, they're not advertised a lot. But I, uh, if you do a little bit of research, which I did, you will you will see that the, these these giant companies are also investing uh, much uh, into this because I think the pretty smart people working there and they know the the value of also logical reasoning and uh, they are trying to find out ways how to combine these percep perceptual uh, like low level uh, recognition that requires a lot of signal processing, statistical approaches, deep learning networks, combining these with very high level symbolic reasoning, combining the best of both worlds. So I think uh, there will be lots of uh, interesting opportunities, both from the end user perspective and also from the business perspective uh, to build much smarter systems. But I will yeah. continue to criticize them no matter what, <laughs> as long as they make uh, fantastic and very surprising mistakes. Yeah, I think I think it's, a, it's, it's definitely good to be Critical of things. I mean, this is how you you highlight and also bring bring forward the the challenges 
uh, or the also the uh, you know the steps that are not being taken. It it I think it remains that you know yeah what I mentioned business kind of drives this advancement. Sadly, uh, I mean even even the research we see in in, in universities and uh, and the likes um, they're sponsored now by most of the time by by companies. So yeah. uh, when the company sees there is benefit financial gain out of it something good for the shareholders you find um you know a push in that direction and when that's lacking unfortunately we you know yeah things do uh, stale a bit what they want to if, if I could, I see it as a as a positive thing. So, well, for one, <laughs> it's a plus one for humans, right? So I think, so when we look at this, uh, the systems we've built um, uh, in with AI and and with the latest technologies, and and when they fail, we're like, oh, look at this, they they they're not good enough, right? And and the human being, when we see something that's out of pattern for us, to us, that's a good thing, right? That's art, you know, that's something. Whoa. This is creative. This is original. I have never seen this. Um, but for machines, it's something that's bad for them, right? <laughs> um, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, I think we can only strive I have to, to I have to quickly disagree there. I, I don't think uh, art is uh, art needs to follow pattern most of the time. No, not pattern, but it's out of pattern, that. actually. Okay. When I said art, I mean something out of pattern. Let's suppose, for example, uh, the, the 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 last one I've seen, for example, uh, so two years ago, that's that's um, the uh, uh, the girl with the balloon uh, frame picture that was was in the in an auction. This frame, this picture, right? Was oh just yeah, uh, Banksy, yeah. Banksy, voila. So yeah, I mean, you see, for example, that act where the the, the piece of art being destroyed in front of you. That simply someone just bet after two million or whatever they bet for it. Uh, so um, we're like, whoa, you know. We, so at that moment, we're trying to process that in our head, right? And we're trying to build um, a, a conclusion on it, or a decision on it, or a, uh, give it even this this uh, graphical relationships, right? We we do that on a continuous basis. Um, uh, so and I think that like. I'm talking about that, for example, because it was, whoa, it's like someone thought about that, right? Well, the majority of people never thought to do something like this. It was like out of this, you know, out of our usual behavior. Um, so in again, if the if a machine had done that, that'd be a bad machine, right? That's not programmed correctly and, uh, you know, it's bad. One more thing I want to mention, right? And And that's apathy, right? Or empathy, I should say, not apathy. So empathy, that's like, you know, I don't know how we can <laughs> do that with machines, right? Because that's really a big, a big uh, differentiator in, in what machines could do as human beings and, and, and what humans do. And that's going to become, it's going to remain always. But a, a I'm going to play the, the, the computer's advocate here again. Uh-huh. <clears throat> I'm not, you know. I'm not against what you're saying, but you know, just to drive the conversation on a little bit. One of the things that Emre uh, is hammering on, I think, it connects to what you're saying is, you know, we're talking about smarter things. We're talking about art, um, originality, creation, and things like that. I think it's very clear that uh, when it comes to general AI, we have a long way to go. But when it comes to very specific tasks, we're doing uh, a really good job in in certain domains. We're doing like 
ex like GPS navigation is exactly like, yeah. it's really really good. Object recognition in normal angled pictures, is very good job. Native English speaking without accent recognition of adult uh, people, very good Indeed. job. Indeed. Uh, but I think when you bring in things like art and aesthetics and empathy, I think you'll they the computers could surprise you because. I strongly believe that um, AI, specific AI, is going to be creating very soon in our, you know, very, very soon um, art that is touching to people. And it will probably start with music, um, where just based off of the catalog of, of millions of songs it already has and lyrics and tunes that it can say, okay, in this genre, I created this song. And, you know, depending on the feedback and streams of people, it will start to tune it and computers, AI will start to create hit songs that make sense, both lyrically that will touch us, you know, like, whoa, this evokes emotions. The, 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 the cold blooded part of course is of course where, you know, it's just metal running through some things, but on the other hand, you're just carbon, you know, uh, what's the as long as it touches your soul? Of course, uh, you could say original thought. Uh, you know the originality of saying I'm going to destroy this. At, you know with impeccable timing, create that surprise effect. You might even train that. I don't know. I, I mean, here's the thing: humans, as we as we know them, you know, as the as the Homo sapiens. I think we've got like a bit over ten thousand year under our belt. You know. And we're like, ah, oh, look how much better we're doing than this machine. We only got a hundred years. But show a bit, a bit, a little bit of empathy towards the machine as well. Like, it's like, I mean, it's baby, baby, baby f steps. What is this machine going to do over twelve thousand years? Will you be able to discern? Like, if could be, like, I could be wrong about this completely. Will you be able to discern? You know, the Turing test where you're chatting to a machine and it, it could absolutely, it wouldn't even take 12,000 years, I think. You would not be able to tell the difference. You'd be able to say, does Usain Bolt know how to run? It's like, who's Usain Bolt? It's like, yeah, it was like a, a runner 12,000 years ago. Oh, I didn't know that. Who, who knows that? Did you look at it? Like, I mean, these are some things uh, to consider, I think. Uh, just, just a remark. Uh, what you said is actually happened to me in terms of, uh, you, you say something like a musical Turing test. Four years ago, I was in uh, one of the biggest computer museums in Paderborn, Germany, and there were a lot of yeah exhibitions. And there was a very special place where uh, some German researchers um, put, a, put a software uh, and they said, this program uh, plays pieces in the style of Bach, but also actual pieces from Bach. Can you distinguish between the real Bach, Johann Sebastian Bach, and the automatically generated? I tried my hand at it, and I failed. I mean, okay, I felt bad. The then funny I thing said, is, an, uh, an I couldn't distinguish. Trained to detect Bach could probably tell the difference. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> yeah. probably. But as a human being, and uh, I, I try to listen to Bach regularly, but I failed. I said, okay. I'm not a I'm not an uh, instrument player. I'm not an expert on baroque music. What I just read, uh, even uh, before this, there's a, a system uh, developed by an American uh, composer and researcher called EMI, E M I EMI, experiments in musical intelligence, and the system created pieces in the style of Frederic Chopin, and then these examples were played to music professors from Eastman School of Music. And 
they said, okay, this piece is originally Chopin and this by the computer. The reverse was true. Again, the example is taken from the book by Professor Melanie Mitchell. Unbelievable. Okay, I'm just a regular listener, but those listeners were professors of music and they couldn't distinguish between the real Chopin and the artificial generated musical piece in the style of Chopin. And I mean, these are extreme pieces. This, of course, uh, this this is past. I mean, we're not talking about future. We're not talking about science fiction. This already happened. Just uh, about two years ago, I was playing with, um, investigating and playing with uh, generative adversarial networks, GANs. And these generative adversarial networks, these applied first to, to, to uh, creating uh, new images in the style of famous painters, but also, I mean, musical pieces. And uh, I took some examples trained the system with, with some uh, Bach pieces, and the system could generate amortizations in the style of Bach. And this was not a symbolic system. This was, there were not explicit musical rules, because there are such systems from 1990s, 1980s. It's just a general system. Yeah, it's, it's, it was a trained system. And the input was Bach. It was, if it was another composer, the system could do. The results, I mean, I run it on my, on my uh, flimsy laptop, just for a couple of minutes, and it was able to generate some output, which is not. What is your bad. input like? Are you thinking about wave files, or just putting in musical it, it notes? Was, it was. It was. Uh, MIDI files or MIDI files, uh, but still there were no no explicit rules in the system. Mm -hmm. And if if you run this for more than a few hours with more processing power, it gets better, and that is fascinating. That's really fascinating. Which brings me to the question: Is I think can the computers find the patterns and repeat them with variations that's not a question i mean it's, it's solved in the sense that yes they did and i could not distinguish but maybe when it comes to creativity the, the question would be something like can computers ever create something like jazz when the jazz didn't exist uh like creating a whole new musical genre that you really like I think that's a pretty big question, and uh, I don't know if I, I think bet on of, it. Of course, I, I'm just going to jump on that. I, I, of course, they're capable of, you know, you, you know, put some mutation into whatever your output is. But the problem is the like, music that you're going to like. You know? Exactly. Yeah, and yeah. this is very subjective. But here's the Indeed. thing: even that, you know, we'll call it empathy. Even I know it's fake, Matt. Like, okay, it's it's fake empathy. It will learn what Emre likes, and I think. One of the thing, the the problems that Met said, you know, the 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 AI or the, the machine is currently being trained on the a common denominator of the of the no. global population. But what we'll probably see in consumer uh, side, you know, on, on maybe on the edge, I don't know if that's a, a correct term from is, is uh, augmenting that uh, information with specifically for Indeed. your voice and that of your household, and it'll probably do the stacking that Met talked about. But in the same way, this augmented uh, network could basically find out what kind of mutations gets a thumb up versus a thumb down from uh, from you and uh i know it's all very binary and maybe i'm i'm too positive about it but you know what i'm going to do uh i'm going to give med uh give the floor to you for your closing remarks because we are way over time like <laughs> okay <laughs> this is uh, it's probably the longest episode we ever did and we haven't even wrapped it up yet so we'll, we'll give I apologize med... for talking too much no 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 no, no. It's, so... it's, it's because it's very yeah. fascinating yeah uh, please go ahead med well um, i'll take this opportunity to uh, well first of all let's thank uh uh for uh for this uh really uh 
um, like almost like lessons of of what's going on because I, I didn't know some of the stuff was uh, was taking place. So thank you for that. Um, I did want to mention that um, the um, uh, when when we uh, so. I think one thing that um, Emery mentioned also last was um, the question he kind of posed was, well, would would um, would the machine be able to create something that did not exist? And and this is where um, it's a big question, actually. Yeah, it's a, it's a challenging question because yeah, you could you could analyze someone's life and and present them with the music they, you know, they would you would expect them to like and they probably would like it, right? But to give them something that's unrelated from their life um, and say, here, you're going to like this one out of nowhere. Uh, so it's like, so it, that's, that's the, and that's the, that's creativity. That's creative, I think. Anyway, we'll leave it as a question actually, because uh, we won't be able um, to answer. I know I was, I'm not supposed to do this, but I just want to play the devil's and the computer's advocate here again. But even that, when you look into, you know, human beings, uh, very few people are actually creative and a lot of creativity, like mutation, the patterns we see, whether it's a deviation or a complete new starting origin for whatever they're going to do, a lot of them fail miserably because people don't like it. It's only a few new things that catch on. A lot of art is actually repetition. We go into phases like, um, um, yeah. uh, I mean, I'll give you uh, of, of Ottoman lit literature, the Nazire period, which is literally you had this, these templates and people remain within those templates and breaking out away from it under the, the influence of, of Western literature was considered a revolution. But for centuries, people literally used the same template and within that framework. So again, you know, it's not like humans do a better job at this than... Uh, and. I think this discussion takes it into very philosophical, even spiritual discussions, maybe. So a, a very important thing is definitions on the goals and the frameworks. And oh my God, I'm so sorry for <laughs> interrupting your final remarks, but this is really fascinating. So Med, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you another, uh, you know. Well, yeah, I, I just have to, you know. I mean, yes, we are the one judging right now, right? We are the humans. We are the one who put the scale, and we can say we are correct, and the machine is wrong when we, when the two, when the two um, sides do not match. I'll stop it here. <laughs> um, okay, um, Emre, could we ask you then to, you know, uh, what was it again that we did, Med? Uh, like. Uh, kind of summarize, the, yeah, yeah, summarize the, the, the episode for us. Uh, well, first of all, again, thank you for the opportunity of um, sp speaking about these fascinating matters. And to, to summarize, uh, we talked about um, uh, computers, my background, <laughs> computers, my background, yeah. and, and the company TM Data. And then we dived into the, um, uh, into the applications of artificial intelligence systems, uh, how successful they are in some domains that, that we all use uh, as, as end users and as, as business uh, as, as companies, and, uh, and the nature of this success, as well as the nature of uh, particular failures, particular errors of these artificial intelligence systems. And I think uh, to, to, to the three people, of the, the participants of this podcast, I think it's all clear to us that this, we all agree that these uh, AI systems are, are driving the innovations, technology, economy, the business, and uh, driving the, the quality of our lives. And they are pretty successful 
and they're well-defined, narrow domains, uh, which are very useful, such as translation, speech recognition, transcription, and object recognition. But also, it's uh, it's also important uh, not only for end users but also for for engineers to know what exactly these systems are, and especially their their failure modes, what they are capable of, what they are not capable of, and the nature of those failures, their their robustness and their fragility characteristics, their profiles. So it's important to to constantly know, uh, have a better understanding, better conceptual understanding of these systems. Why? Because we can and we are human beings. And uh, and to augment our intelligence with the system. So, so maybe we can say artificial intelligence or we can say augmented intelligence, which also can be abbreviated as AI. And by the way, the, the company, like I say, TM Data, and our slogan is like, our motto is like, technology matters. Human beings also matter. So but then it becomes a very long motto. So technology matters, and it's important to to, to understand the ramifications, the consequences. Uh, uh, it's important to have a, a good mental engineering model of these very very advanced, very very complex systems. And I my hope is that the the, the listeners uh, will leave this podcast with a slightly better understanding of these systems, and maybe uh, with uh, with more questions to pursue. And help their understanding, and uh, I think we will, we would need uh, more than a few episodes to talk about its its impacts on business it on, on other projects. To be but that, I, that's correct. But yeah, we can we can recap it. We can yeah we can summarize. I don't it this feel way. like I don't feel like we've reached the bottom of this one at all. But this we're just know. getting started. Yeah, so, I have, yeah. I, I'll, I'll ask though for our listeners at uh, at home um, if they have questions, how can they reach you? Uh, well, uh, as a as a old old school old fashioned uh, computer professional, I I uh, prefer um, email, so they okay. can they can write directly to me, uh, which you can share my 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 email address. Uh, it's uh, I thought they you were going write... to say news groups. <laughs> uh, like they, they can they can directly write to my email address. Uh, they can also find me in, in social media. I'm 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 a very easy to find person. I'm a very approachable person. Okay, that's my perception. So uh, we're going so, to tag you on the LinkedIn post anyway. Yeah, you and, can you can yeah. do that. So uh, they can find me in social media. But uh, for anything uh, anything that requires um, serious human to human interaction, I I prefer email. Uh, I think it's a very good medium. So, and then yeah, they can they can visit our company website. They can check the blog uh, about and about these uh, interesting uh, AI examples. Uh, and if they uh, require more information, I will be more than happy to, to share more information with them for both end user cases and also for for business projects. Okay. Okay, Master Med, where can people find you? And you can always uh, go to my website, uh, madmed.com. That's M-A-D-M-E-D.com. M-A-D-M-E-D.com. My name is Errol Baikal. You can find me on baikal.be, B-A-Y-K-A-L. For our dear listeners at home, whether you're sitting in your office chair or sitting in, the, uh, you know, in your lawn chair, in your garden, or somewhere in a coffee shop, thank you for being with us again. And um, I almost forgot about it. Like this was the last episode of the season. So just briefly something about that. We're taking uh, a little break um, because I think this is the 30th episode or something. Um, 
uh, good job, Matt. Uh, good job, Errol. Uh, good job, Emra, <laughs> for being the third <laughs> guest. Uh, so we're going to take at least uh, like the, the summer. There won't be any new episodes. But for September, um, come September, we have some uh, exciting new uh, episodes uh, already lined up. Um, so we have some guests already planned. Um, well, yeah, that, that's it. Not very exciting, I know. Well, <laughs> bye. See you. See you after the summer. Bye. Bye. Take care.